Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. If you are looking to get more questions answered, I answer them over on my Patreon page. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton at the $20 tier. So it's 20 bucks a month. Um, you get to ask a question on our monthly live stream. Those live streams last for like three hours. We hang out a lot. Also, there's extra video content over there. There's a Discord all sorts of good stuff. So you can head over there and check it out. But without further ado, let's jump into today's questions. Question number one says, Hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well. What are your thoughts on voice recording therapy sessions? I have the past three sessions and my therapist doesn't know. We're going to talk about this. I tend to listen to them multiple times a week and I don't know why. I also found my therapist on social media and I like learning more about her. Hmm. However, since doing this, it has been a lot easier sharing with her and I have been more open and more comfortable. Is this something that I need to talk to her about? Will she think it's weird that I do that? This is a great question. There's also some comments below. Now, voice recording sessions is fine with your therapist's consent. I don't know if it's in every state or country, but I do know in the state of California, in order to actually record someone, you have to ask their permission. I mean... It's not like there's any nefarious, I don't know, you don't have any nefarious ideas or malicious intent behind this, right? You're just doing it because, and we'll get into why I think you're doing it, but you're doing it so that you have it afterward. A lot of therapists will allow for it. And some of them even record, back when I was getting my license, actually, we had to film or record a session and get critiqued by our supervisor so that we could be better at doing what we're doing. Um, and we had to ask permission from the patient, obviously, and all that good stuff. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. You need to let your therapist know what's happening though. And they might offer to let you record them every time. Some people keep all their sessions. Um, you just need to tell them because to record them without their knowledge is a, it, it's a little gray. It's a little funky. They might, they wouldn't think you're weird, but the fact that you did it without telling them, they might say, you know, please don't do that again. Something like that. But again, there's no, no mil like ill intent. You're doing it because you want to have it. And I think the real piece here, the real therapeutic component is the fact that you want to know more about your therapist and you want to listen to the, the sessions in between each session. And so I'm curious about attachment and it's like my little borderline type tendencies, attachment style, like my spidey senses went up there because the need to know more and the need to listen in between if it's done with the hopes of feeling more connected and like you know more about them and you're more, I don't know, closely associated, I guess. Some of my patients will say that they like to think that they're, they're like my friend. That's really like a goal of theirs or they wish I was their mom or something. And it's very normal. No, no judgments, no shame about this. That's an incredibly normal experience. It's just something that we need to talk about in therapy because it comes from a, a hurt place. It comes from an old wound that we need to work through. 
Usually this means that our parents didn't show up for us in one way or another. Could be because they were abusive, could be um, because they emotionally couldn't meet us where we're at, you know, all sorts of different forms of abuse, right? Things like neglect and then physical, sexual, emotional abuse. There's all sorts of pieces to it. And so we kind of need to figure out where that's coming from for you because I think that will guide a lot of your treatment. Okay. So talk to her about it. It's not weird. Um, ask her if she, if she reminds if you record them. She probably won't. I, I can't imagine her being bothered. I would never be bothered. Um, yeah. And I would even let her know that you find yourself wanting more of that connection and you'd like to dive into that. Even though I know, even as I said that, you're like, I don't want to dive into it. That sounds terrible. That's where the work is. Unfortunately, sometimes I think the stuff that we want to shy away from in therapy is actually the stuff we really need to work on. And I know that's shitty, but unfortunately it's the truth. The easy stuff is easy because it's easy. It's not challenging. It's not changing anything, right? So we got to work on the hard stuff. Ugh, I know. Trust me, it's hard. Okay. Couple of comments. Someone said, I found my therapist on Instagram. Is it bad if I follow her? What will she do or think? If it's a public account and you follow, then it's meant to be public. I think of social media and maybe I'm also have my own biases because I'm on social media in such a big way, but public facing social media is public. And so it's stuff that they know they're making public. And if they didn't want it to be like most of my therapist friends have a, a separate account if they even have a thera therapist account online, but they have a separate one that's private, that's personal. That's that we, I'm, I hope I would assume they're training and teaching people in school about this and how to manage that. So if it's public and you can follow by all means, you should, I would talk to them about it and just mention, say, Hey, I found you on Instagram and I was going to follow, you know, is it like therapeutic stuff or is it not appropriate? It'd be a good idea to ask, just to double check. But there's nothing wrong with it, I don't think. Okay, another add-on says, I have considered voice recording my therapy sessions as I can never seem to remember what we talked about as I tend to zone out and dissociate, making it difficult to process what we talked about. Would voice recording sessions be a good idea to help this or would listening back to the recordings be too triggering depending on what we had discussed? That's a great question. Now, I have, I've had tons of patients do that record because of dissociation and difficulty like processing it all in the moment, keeping up with it, right? Sometimes it can feel like, oh, they said something really powerful in the moment. I'm like, yeah. And then you forget that happens to us all, right? Regardless of dissociation or overwhelm and trauma, I would ask and I get yourself, you know, one of those little, you could record it on your phone, obviously, but you can even just get like a little MP3 recorder type of thing. I'm sure they're fancier now, but back in the day, ours were just tiny and that was nice. You could record like 40 hours on one of them. So that was, you know, maybe that's something we look into. You could save it on your computer and play it back. But the good question here is about, will it be too triggering? Now, because it caused dissociation, chances are it could continue to cause you to dissociate. Something that I would do is I would record them I've talked to my therapist about it, obviously, let them know that you do it when you dissociate and we need to work on some skills so that you don't find it so triggering next time. Because remember triggering, it, we can be triggered, but that overreaction, that dissociation, that overwhelm that we're experiencing is because we don't have the proper tools or skills in the moment to manage it. And so that would be kind of the work that I would have you do in therapy would be those, you know, coming up with those tools and skills to kind of calm you down. Does that mean that we like pinch on our arms a little bit? Does that mean we do the body shake? Does that mean we splash cold water in our face while we listen? You know, the fact that you have these on tape 
will give you even more opportunities to try different coping skills while you listen to it and work through it. I think it could be really healing and helpful, but talk to your therapist because again, I only know what you're telling me and they might say, oh, it's a little too much right now, but we can do it once we've you know gotten over this really difficult memory or something. I don't know what you're working on, but we want to make sure that we're not setting ourselves up to be re-traumatized over and over and over again, because that's not what we want. But I think it could be really helpful and kind of like a way to do exposure therapy in a very healing and healthy way. Okay. Another follow-up says, I found my therapist's blog that she wrote when she was 17. And that's the same age as this person, they said. After I read all of her posts, I told her about it and she thanked me for telling her. She forgot about the, the blog and she is so sorry that I found it. I asked if it's going to make a difference in our relationship. Oh, she asked if it's going to make a difference in our relationship. I said, no, she blocked the blog. She probably pulled it down. Since then I left, I felt like I know her better and I feel like I can really understand she can really understand what I'm going through because she and I are very similar. But after that, I feel like I'm comparing her life as a teenager to my life, even though I know it's very different and we are in a different generation. Like she's in generation Y and I'm in Z. It really bothers me that I don't have a social life like she had. Should I talk to her about that? Yes, I definitely would. I'm glad you told her. That's amazing. A lot of times therapists will forget, especially because you have to remember, guys, I'm going to be 40 this year. So there's a whole generation of therapists coming into the field who would be, you know, how old was I when? I mean, I started in like, I was 23, 24 seeing patients. And then you finish school at like 25, I guess I finished school. So they would have always had access to the internet. They could have always put things on YouTube, Tumblr, Instagram, TikTok, whatever, um, Twitter. And we can sometimes forget about those things. So it's great that you told her. I understand why she's like, oh, I'm sorry about that. I forgot. I'm glad that she stopped it and blocked it um, because she wants to be a professional. She wants to be a therapist. She doesn't want everybody finding that, right? But I would talk to her about all that came up for you. I would talk about the connection that you felt and and that it's caused you to judge yourself in this way and that way. I think in general, you know, we can use situations like this. Sure, I'm sure your therapist wished this didn't happen, not of any fault of yours, of hers, where she's like, oh, shit, I should have gotten rid of that. I didn't came, you know, didn't even think about it. But we can use this to help improve our therapeutic process, the therapeutic relationship. And I think all that this triggered is important to talk about and I'm sure she would be more than willing to work through that with you because there's some, you know, judgments in there. You have some negative self-talk, but it also helped with the connection with her because there were a lot of things you're like, I feel like we're really similar. You know, I think that could be helpful to talk through and to process through and hopefully not only deepen your therapeutic relationship, but also help you better understand where you're at and maybe set some different goals in therapy. Maybe it's things that we didn't think of before that we are important to us, like being more social. And those are things that maybe you can prioritize with her. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie. I tend to ruminate on what my therapist says following our sessions. While doing so, I'll try it for a deeper meaning. Oh, I'll try to look for a deeper meaning because I have a hard time taking what she says at face value. For example, I'll try to remember exactly what she said and then think about the different ways that it could be interpreted and start wondering what her intent was in saying it. This is interesting. Also, I want to know what she is thinking and feeling and want to know how she feels and what she thinks about me. I find her very hard to read. That's because she's a good therapist. 
and she keeps her emotions to herself, which makes me think that wanting to know about them is out of bounds for a therapy relationship. It is. We'll talk about this. She's very professional and kind, but I feel like she holds back and greatly filters what she says. And I want to know more about what she isn't saying. Is this encroaching on her boundaries as a therapist? What kind of things do you think about but don't share with your clients in terms of what they're dealing with and how you feel about them? Any insight would be appreciated. Many thanks and take care. Okay, so much to unpack here. Let's start with what I would say this more simple things. She's holding back and filtering what she says because she's a good therapist. So yes, asking her like how she feels about something in a real way is just not going to happen because she's there for you. To focus on what she's feeling or emotions that are coming up or things that she's thinking that aren't helpful or therapeutic or even necessary. Because think helpful doesn't mean that those thoughts are unhelpful. It's like they have no value, right? So we don't need to bring those into session because they're her things, not your things. And session is all about you, which leads me to unpack like the larger piece of this, which is this reaction that you're having is very interesting. I would encourage you to tell your therapist that this is coming up for you, that this is kind of your process, because I have a lot of suspicions. I'm very suspicious of whether or not you've had any abuse or maybe an addict in your home. This sounds very people pleasy, like you're always trying to read people, know what they're thinking and feeling so you know how to act so that we don't upset them, so that we don't get hurt again or they don't use again. That's my spidey sense, number one. Second is um, the fact that it's so distressing to you tells me that you've probably been doing it for a really long time. And I'd be interested about your other relationships, how this plays out. Like if you have a friend that you think might be mad at you, do you just, like I do this, if I think someone might be mad at me, I can like worry about it forever and ever. Therapy, like therapy process helped me to recognize it had nothing to do with me. And I can check in with some of my friends that I'm really close with and be like, Hey, how you doing? And they'll get back to me. And I'll be like, see, they're not mad, you know, do those little check-ins. Um, anyways, that's the bigger piece because trying to interpret what she's saying and figuring out the different meanings that could be behind it could be part of your anxiety, which again, I think comes from maybe people pleasing, abuse, addiction, something happening, um, in your home growing up because your room, you're like fixated on it. So overall, I know you want some more insight. I'll, I'll assuage you, your anxieties a little bit. The things that I don't share with my clients are usually things I don't think they're ready to hear. That's all I really filter. Um, obviously, I filter any of my own beliefs or, uh, I don't know, experiences that I have that aren't worth sharing. I don't share that in session because again, it's their time. I share my own stuff in my own sessions, right? That's what I go to therapy for is to dump my shit there. But your space that I, I hold that space for you, for your stuff, okay? So those are the only things I really hold back and I don't really share with my clients. Um, and when I said things are not ready to hear, it could be like a realization they haven't come around to yet where I could be like, wow, I think we have a pattern here. I think they always end up dating someone who's emotionally unavailable or hmm, it seems like maybe they're boyfriend or girlfriend is a little bit manipulative. Hmm, we have to draw attention to that, right? Or it doesn't seem like they're sleeping very well. I'm going to have to remind them of that next time or you know what I mean? Or if it's my eating disorder patient, I wouldn't mention right away. Like if I notice there's some behaviors are coming back, I want to see, you know, we kind of sometimes wait to see if you'll come around to it before we we wouldn't even address it directly. We'd ask questions to get you to come around to it. So that's kind of what being a therapist is all about. So really there's not a lot that I don't share, but in a way, I guess you could say that's a lot, but it's just me waiting for you to get to the place that I can see you need to get to. 
if that makes sense. Okay. I know you want more insights. I know you, you're worried that she might be thinking and feeling certain ways, but I'm here to tell you that's your space. And I would be more interested in you figuring out why that is your focus and why that's so like debilitating and causing you to ruminate. Okay. I know. I'm sorry. I know it's a hard answer, but trust me when I tell you that's where the work is going to be the most beneficial for you. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? It says, I've started to be able to open up a bit more in therapy and talk about more difficult things. Yay. So good. So glad. I don't want to accept it, but I know part of it was sexual abuse. And my therapist has labeled it that. I know that naming can be both validating and horribly heavy and difficult. So hang in there. My question is, how much detail do you need to share? I've only talked about it in quite broad terms, but obviously enough for her to say that it was abuse. While I want to share more detail because I think it'll help me process it, I also know for me, doing that would cause me to dissociate and even trying to think it through on, in my own mind is really triggering and I'll shut down. Try, I'm trying to find a balance. Oh no, trying to find a balance is so hard and sharing things like this goes against everything I know. I know your answer is probably going to be only share as much as you want, but what is too much and what's not enough and how can you do it in a way that isn't too triggering? Thank you for sharing everything you do. It's invaluable to so many people. Of course, of course, I'm happy to do it. Okay, so great question. Now, and there's a bunch of follow-ups on this. So let's one thing at a time here. You don't have to go into intense detail. It really depends on what type of therapy she's offering. So currently I'm actually in EMDR myself, which I'm finding very interesting because uh, I'm using it to manage grief, okay? That's kind of like the brunt of my work right now in therapy because we've had so much loss in my family in the last like three years. Um, so anyways, the EMDR is to help me become less reactive. And I don't know if she's doing EMDR with you, but I'm just gonna walk you through what my therapist told me because this might be kind of helpful, is she told me that when it comes to details of the deaths, right, because I'm dealing with grief, when it comes to those details, I don't really have to share a ton of specifics. I can just share like the general gist because it's more about bringing it forth in my brain, making it be the front thing, the thing that I'm communicating about in that moment. That's enough to help me find tools to utilize that can calm me down and, and make me feel okay. And in essence, by bringing it forward and doing the EMDR at the same time, it's processing it. And so I don't have to go into as much detail. So if you, if this is EMDR therapy, you don't have to go into as much detail. Now, even if it's talk therapy, okay, so now we're going to switch over to just what I would call general therapy, where you're, they're asking questions, you're answering, you're talking it through. It's not necessary for you to go into every detail in order to process it, but we're going to have to talk about it little by little and kind of what we're going to try to do is increase your window of tolerance or build that resilience. We could call it either thing. It's the same thing, window of tolerance, resilience. We're going to try to build that up because the goal of therapy and the goal of overcoming any trauma or abuse in our past is to make it so that in our regular life, we're less reactive and it's not affecting us anymore. Does that make sense? So that I'm not so hypervigilant or I'm not so isolated because I don't like, to, you know, people scare me and I don't, people come up behind me. I have always have to sit with my back to a wall or, you know, we can have a lot of ways that our trauma affects us in the now. And the goal of therapy is to get us to a place where we don't have that. And so that might mean that we talk through some of the detail and find ways to calm us down. That might mean we talk through only like 
a tenth of it or maybe 90%, we're going to have to build up a little bit as we build that resilience, that window of tolerance so that you don't, because you said you shut down, you dissociate. We want to prevent that from happening because if we dissociate, if we shut down, we cannot process. And so just keep that in mind. That's the goal of therapy is to get us to a point where we're able to engage in life in a way that feels good for us, like in a real healthy way and not be overwhelmed or triggered by our environment. And sure, there might be certain instances that are triggering because it's a big thing or potentially another trauma, right? But most of the things that affect us today won't be affecting us anymore. That's the goal. And so we want to get you there. And so it's little by little as we build up our resources. And so letting your therapist know that, you know, I dissociate, I shut down, it's super triggering. We need to find a pace that works for you. And you really need to build up those like resources so you can use them and make that window of tolerance bigger and bigger so you can get into more of what happened to you and actually get you to a place where it's not so emotionally charged. Does that make sense? I hope so. I know it's kind of complicated, but you don't have to go into a lot of detail right now. It's too overwhelming. It's not going to help you. You could potentially re-traumatize yourself. It's really important that you go at your own pace little by little as you use your coping skills or resources to calm your system down. Okay. Now there was a comment, a bunch of comments, but the first comment on this says, Hey Katie, I wrote down the details for my therapist and I emailed her. I feel like I shared way too much. Oop, we're having a vulnerability hangover. I, f- I shared way too much detail about child, uh, childhood sexual abuse. And now I'm extremely worried about my next appointment. I'm feeling overwhelmed and experiencing worsened anxiety. Also, I have very limited sessions available with my therapist because of our Medicare system. Ugh. I'm so annoyed. I feel like I need to rush, but speaking about this in session is actually impossible. What can I do to help work through this? I do have a referral to a free clinic that specializes in sexual assault and sexual abuse, but I find that incredibly um, confronting and I don't want to use a service others need. Oh, look at that minimization. You did this just then. Okay. First of all, let your therapist know about this. I don't know if you feel you can, but sometimes talking about or on the side of an issue makes it okay. And I would just encourage you, maybe do a full body shake before that appointment. Let her know, I emailed you and I'm having like worsening anxiety because of it. it. I really feel like I shared too much and I'm overwhelmed. Can we slow down? And maybe write that down. Maybe practice saying it so you can say it in your, almost in your sleep so that when you go there, even if you feel scared or overwhelmed, you can still get it out. But that's what I would say. Nobody says you have to run at the speed of light. I hate that they have limited sessions. It's so frustrating. Ugh, Medicare system. It can be helpful in some ways, but really not when it comes to mental health care. So let them know that you're feeling that way. It's okay. It happens to all of us. That's why I call it like a vulnerability hangover. Sometimes we feel like um, in Sex and the City, she calls it being emotionally slutty when you like share too much too fast. And you're like, wait, what am I doing? And we can have like that hangover effect after where we're like, oh my God, oh my God, what did I say? And like you said, you're feeling like worsened anxiety. Let her know so that she knows not to bring that stuff up until you're ready. Okay. Because the whole goal of working through this stuff is to not go too fast because we don't want to re-traumatize. Okay. And that free clinic. Okay. I really have to say this because you need to hear it. You can take up space. You have a right to take their time. They're offering it to you let's use it. You deserve to get that help. I know trauma tells us like you're making it too too big of a deal. You're just, it's all your fault, right? Shame, guilt, embarrassment. They just squash us, hold us in the trauma response. And I'm here to tell you that it's not helpful. 
going into therapy is going to be life-changing for you. You have that referral. Let's utilize it. You clearly, it's hard for you to talk about it in session. We're not there yet. We're going to need more time. <sighs> Breathe. I give you all the permission that you need to say, I'm going to go to that free clinic. I'm going to get as many sessions as I need until I can feel less reactive. I can feel a little bit better. I don't feel so constantly hypervigilant or traumatized. Be patient and kind with yourself. You're working through a lot, but you have every right to take up that time and to take that space at the free clinic, okay? You do. I know trauma tells you you don't. It's a liar. You have every right. They wouldn't give you the referral if you didn't deserve it. Okay. Another add-on says, I can relate to all of this. As an add-on, I was seeing a free counseling service that specializes in sexual abuse and everything was going okay until my counseling, who had been, I had been seen, or my counselor, I think, who had been seen weekly for five months, just said that she quit and I wouldn't see her again. No warning. Jesus Christ. I got a new therapist, but she spent the first half of my first session with her explaining in detail the abuse she sustained from her father and all the other times she was assaulted. What? She proceeded to say that I need to cut all of the adults in my life out and that I have an eating disorder because I don't eat breakfast. I didn't go back. I wouldn't either. And I never want to again. I have a psychologist and she's amazing, but I draw a distinction between my depression and anxiety and my trauma. And I rarely talk about my abuse. And if and when I do, it's in very broad terms. I've noticed I can't talk about my trauma in any real detail or with any clarity since I had that appointment with my previous counselor. I do have a notebook with all the details of my abuse and I really want to let her read it so that I don't have to say it out loud, but I don't know how to. I don't want to burden her with the awful details that I can't even speak about. What should I do, Katie? Keep doing what, oh, says Katie, keep doing what you're doing. You're amazing. Of course, of course I will. And thank you. That's so kind of you. Um, okay. That, I would not have gone back to that one either. That's ridiculous. Shouldn't have spent the time talking about herself and about her own abuse. What in the, no, good choice. Now your psychologist now, um, I don't know how much you'd be able to say. So I'm just going to give you some ideas. Now I've had tons of patients give me their journals and their notebooks and their whatevers to have me read something because they can't communicate it in session. That's fine. That's a great loophole when our brain and mouth won't get on the same platform. We can't get it out. You're like, get it together, guys. Work together. Get on the same page. And they won't. We can write it out. I even had patients, I've told you guys in the past, make like YouTube videos and unlist them and send the link to me. And that was how I'd be updated on how they're doing. It's okay to do that. I would encourage you to utilize the resources you have and give it to your therapist and say, I can't talk about some of this stuff in session. It's too hard. I've flagged the pages or here's the pages of what, you know, what I've went through and give it to her. That's okay. We deal with stuff like that all the time. I would be cautious and consider, maybe play it out first before you give her that information. I want you to imagine that you already have and how would you feel knowing that she has it? Does that make sense? Because I like the person above said that they shared, they felt like they overshared. Now we have like an increased anxiety. I want to make sure that we don't do that to you. We don't want to do too much too fast. Um, so consider that. And I'm proud of you for being able to write it out. If writing helps, keep writing, keep journaling about it. You know, every day, write like half a page or a page, you know, just a little journal page, not like, or if you want to write more, write more, but getting it out can be really beneficial. Um, yeah, you can even just hand it to her at the end of a session, say there's some stuff in there I, I can't talk about, but I want you to know. I've had patients do all sorts of things, email it to me, 
give it to me at the end of a session, fold it up in a letter and like give it to me at the end, say there's some stuff in there, all sorts of different versions of the same thing. Text it to me. However, you can get that over to her in a way that feels okay. Again, play it out. Make sure we're not setting you up to feel worse. Um, I think that's fine. And that would help you maybe feel more heard and understood as long as, again, it's not too overwhelming to know that she'll have all that information. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well. So my question is, what uh, about what affects growing up with a parent who argued and did verbally abuse each other has on a child who had to watch it and live with it? Okay, so what's the effect of that? My dad was verbally abusive to my mom, and he was also an alcoholic. I had to watch him come home every night drunk and spend tons of time yelling and screaming at my mom. I also had my mom confide in me at a young age uh-oh, and complain about my dad. I never looked at this as a trauma, but it is, isn't it? Yes, it very much is. Why is something like watching your parents be verbally abusive and fight not talked about more and the effects that it can have on children that then goes on into their adult life? I've also recently started going to therapy and have slightly gotten more comfortable talking with my therapist each week. I still have a little bit of caution when talking to her and get, I get anxious, which we've addressed and she's aware of, and it's something we're still working on. She is great though, and I can't wait to continue going. Love your podcast and thank you for answering these types of questions. Of course, of course, I'm so glad you found that therapist. Yes, this is trauma. I guess we maybe, I should talk about it more then. Thanks for the heads up because remember, I don't know if you remember, but I've talked about what it means to be traumatized. And in essence, when we fear for the life or safety of ourselves or someone else, someone that we care about, like a mom or a dad, we fear for their safety or their life. If he's hitting her, yelling at her, screaming, any kind of abuse, that's emotional abuse, by the way, even if he never laid a hand on her, it sounds like he yelled and screamed at her. Not, not okay. Probably feared for her safety, maybe feared for your own safety. That whole event or whole experience was traumatizing because you fear for that safety. That's all it takes to be traumatized. Now, not everyone who's traumatized develops PTSD, but we can if we don't have any way to cope with it. And you might not have had a way to cope with it. I don't know how this is showing up for you in your life, but it sounds like it might be. Um, And you might even find yourself attracted to men similar to your dad that are very, you know, gregarious and maybe a little loud could be, you know, more abusive. So just be cautious of that. Be cognizant of the fact that, you know, if a man is, you know, not very emotionally available, tends to get really riled up drinking, that's a bad sign, you know? Um, I know the drinking is kind of an easy red flag to look out for, but it doesn't always coincide with the verbal abuse. So just, just throwing it out there. Um, Al-Anon could be a great resource for you. It's uh, AA for the family, essentially. I forget why it's called Al-Anon. It's essentially like Alcoholics Anonymous, but for the family. Um, I encourage you to get in on that if you feel comfortable. There's also uh, one of my friends was just talking about, it's like a children of alcoholics, adult children of alcoholics. That's another group that you can get in touch with as well, just like Al-Anon. And so that could be something that could be helpful. Um, okay. So yes, that is abuse. I just want to make sure I'm answering all of your questions. Um, glad you have your therapist. Keep talking about it as much as you feel comfortable doing. And yeah, and, and it might be helpful for you to, to get into Al-Anon or get into the adult children of alcoholics, because there can be certain ways this can show up in your adult life. Um, your question said, uh, 
and also can have children that goes on. And yes, so it can show up in, t- in your adult life, like picking the same types of partners that are similar to your dad or your mom. Um, we can find ourselves in emotionally abusive relationships as a result. We can struggle with our own confidence or we can be really triggered by any kind of like smallest of whatever arguments and so we can find ourselves being like a people pleaser hypervigilance kind of going into that like fawn response of the fight flight freeze fawn um like this extreme people pleasing so there's a lot of different ways it can show up for us in our relationships whether it be you know professional relationship friendship or romantic because because of what we lived with what we grew up with what was our quote-unquote normal for all those years okay and i'll try to talk about it more Now, there was a comment on this that I do have an add-on. My therapist suggested bringing my mom into therapy to talk about it. My dad was the abusive one, but I really don't know how to discuss this since I feel like she doesn't know that it affected me this badly, and I'm too scared it will only make everything worse. My mom tries so hard to be good for everyone, and I'm scared I'll break her heart if I open up about my real feelings. What would you suggest? It's so interesting. Um, the dynamic of a, an abusive or a, addicted home. There's always the parent that tries to keep it all together. They're the enabler. Unfortunately, your mom's the enabler. And she's probably an extreme people pleaser because she walked on eggshells hoping to not be abused, right? Um, and so we've picked up on that. And we also engage in that behavior thinking that we need to people please and we need to act really careful. We need to make sure we don't hurt mom because mom's already been so hurt. Mom being hurt doesn't negate you being hurt. One, they can exist together, unfortunately. There's enough hurt to go around. And I know I say this all the time, but you don't have to light yourself on fire to keep others warm. You're essentially lighting yourself on fire so that your mom doesn't feel the pain and doesn't recognize how hard this was on you. And I am i don't know, but I would assume she knows that, that it hurt you because if it hurt her, I mean, maybe she dissociated and doesn't remember. I don't know, but... If your therapist thinks it could be beneficial for you to bring her in, if you think it could be beneficial for you, I would encourage you to work your way up to that. Now, don't feel pressure to do it quickly. We don't have to decide and have mom come in. Oh, mom needs to come in now. No, we can work up to it. We can talk about it with our therapist, the concerns we have with it, the the struggles. Um, the person, I also forgot to mention, the person earlier said their mom confided in them at a young age. That's uh, not healthy. It's emotional incest you can call it i have a video about that um it can cause us to be a parentified child feeling like we're the other parent because the other parent is an alcoholic or is an addict or is an abuser and isn't showing up for us um but anyways i just wanted to throw that out there because in this case i wonder too if you were the parentified child and so you feel kind of responsible for your mom um because her being good for everyone doesn't doesn't mean that you couldn't have been hurt by your dad being abusive Right? You can still love your mom and admit that your dad was an asshole. And it's not all your mom's fault that that happened, you know? I know a lot of parents will say like, oh, I feel guilty because I stayed with them as long as I did. Um, like, you know, we have people in our life who are getting divorced and they're like, oh, I stayed with them too long. I think it was bad for the kids. Parents worry about that. But that's not why you're bringing her in there is to shame her or blame her. You're bringing her in there so that you know, it could be helpful for you to process it. So consider it, talk it out, no rush. I think it could be incredibly beneficial. She obviously is doing the best that she can. You can acknowledge that with her, but her doing the best she can and being a good mom doesn't mean that you can't be hurt by what your dad did also. Okay. They're not mutually, mutually exclusive. I think you should bring her in, but take your time with it. Okay. 
Now, another add-on is that my parents had huge fights when I was little, screaming at each other, my father sometimes destroying things in the home. I remember some fights ending with my mom leaving the house and slamming the door shut and me fearing that she might never come back. Can this be traumatic for a child? 100%. I struggle to know whether something was actually traumatic or not. I fear the overuse of this word and that other people's real trauma is invalidated by me using this term too loosely. Can you speak to that, Katie? Yes. Again, when we have trauma, um, like I said, the fear for our safety or someone we love, in that case, both definitely traumatizing. Um, I know what you're worried about that like the overuse of the word will make it not as powerful or impactful. But the the struggle that I have with situations, especially because this was a trauma, is that those of us who are traumatized have so much like guilt and shame and embarrassment. It's hard. We minimize, we invalidate. It's going to be hard enough for us to call it that. So I really don't think if, if we're, we've been through something and we're like, oh, I don't know, maybe it is a trauma, maybe not. That feels like too much. Chances are it probably was because it's part of that shame response. It's part of that invalidation, the minimization of being traumatized. Um, and there's enough, unfortunately, enough trauma to go around. You saying you're traumatized doesn't take it from someone else. I know we can think or assume that people won't take it as seriously, but let's hope that people aren't that jaded, that people will take it seriously. I continue to take it seriously. I know people use that term a lot. I don't think that makes it any, it doesn't take any value from it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, that definitely was traumatic. That definitely is a trauma and you have every right to use that word. You're not overusing it. You're using it correctly. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. Also, just as a side note, I always kind of get flustered with people, not this person, with people who think they can say that word's so overused. Everybody's traumatized. Everybody's depressed. I find those people to be like the worst people, the Usually they're like abusers um, and harmful people on their own. Like that's why they're, or they have so much difficulty admitting that things are painful and people suffer that they can't even tolerate a, a term. They want to say, well, everybody's depressed now. Everybody's traumatized now. As if that makes it any less true or any less valid, right? I get really annoyed. I feel like that's such a, an ignorant statement to make. And again, now this person did not say this, but just think of that when you hear somebody saying, oh, that word's so overused or, oh, people, you know, everybody's feeling X, Y, or Z now. I'm like, yeah, everybody is traumatized. We went through a global pandemic. We had riots in our cities. We had uh, horrific things happen on the news that we watched in perpetuity. Things are still happening are terrible, right? There's shootings all the time. It's, yeah, I think we might be, right? Sometimes I want to argue back and be like, yeah. We are. Does that make it any less impactful? Nope. Still just as serious means we need more mental health treatment out there that's easily available and accessible. Ta-da. Okay. A soapbox. I'm off. Moving on to question number five. It says, hi, Katie. I'm 30 years old and I still carry my teddy with me everywhere I go. I have an intense fear that if I leave him home alone, my house might burn down or that I will for some reason not be able to get back to him ever again. I feel really embarrassed by this and have never told anyone that he's in my bag. Do you think it's okay to keep carrying him around or should I try to leave him at home? And if I should leave him home, how do I do that? Just for reference, I'm diagnosed with OCD, anxiety, and PTSD due to childhood emotional abuse and rape as an adult. Okay. Um, what we call this, I mean, there's a lot of different, there's transitional objects. I don't know if this is necessarily what I'd call a transitional object. That's when you take something from one period in your life, like, um, 
let's say I had a really great time at summer camp as a kid and we painted these rocks and me and this other girl that I was best friends with, we exchanged rocks and I take that rock with me and I still have it on my desk to this day. That's a transitional object. You can also give them as therapists to patients when they're transitioning out of treatment, they can take that object with them, not necessarily the rock obviously, but like a thing that I would give them like a candle or a card or something, or even just a little figurine, something they can take it with them so that then when they look at that, they can be reminded of all the work we did together. Okay. So there's therapeutic terms for that. Now with you, I think it's more of a self-soothing kind of thing. Um, I don't know if you're in therapy, but my encouragement for you would be to talk about this in therapy before we try to imagine not carrying our teddy with us. Because I think to just try to leave it at home or try to leave it in the car, that's going to be so anxiety provoking right now. It's just too much too fast. It's like the, that old, um, uh, what's it called? It's like an analogy, I guess, but that I've talked about in the past called Chesterton's fence. Like you can't remove something until you understand its purpose. We can't remove Teddy until we understand its purpose. So we have to figure out why do we, why do we need Teddy? What does Teddy do for us? Why do we feel like we need to have him in our bag? Why are we so worried that something would happen to him? Like you can play that out. You can journal about that. I would highly encourage that because I know there's probably, like you said, you're embarrassed about it, but it serves a purpose. And we need to understand what that is before we even try to consider not engaging with that, not having him with us, right? So learn about it, figure out what purpose it serves for you. And then we can try to decide what we want to do about it. Because it sounds like your goal is to actually not have to bring him with you everywhere. And that's fine. If that's your goal, that's fine. I'm fine with that. But I don't want you doing it to, to a point where it makes you feel worse, right? We want to do it little by little as we try to better understand what it offers you. Does that make sense? And a lot of people, I will even admit this openly, I still have my baby blanket in my bed, pink, my pink blankie. She's very beat up guys. So holy. And I'm a horrible seamstress as a child. So she's not looking too hot. Um, but the thing that's interesting to consider is I always like having it in there, but if something happened to it, I'd be okay. It'd be like, Oh, and then I'd move on, you know? So it's important for us to understand emotional connections with items and what they mean to us. And I think probably, I mean, I was such a blankie kid. I loved having my blanket with me all the time. I'm still a blankie adult. Like I always like blankets on me. I don't, it's probably soothing. It's probably calming. I probably, I also don't, I get cold really easy. So I like that. But so I think it was a transitional object for me. I think moving from home into college and never going back, like leaving my anything I knew that was soothing and helpful. And it's okay. Like I'm sharing it because I don't want anybody to feel like there's needs to be embarrassment or shame about this. It's incredibly common. And maybe it's something I talk about in a full video, um, but there's a lot of reasons we can do that. And I think understanding why and giving yourself a little love and compassion about it is going to be key. We don't need to judge ourselves about this yet. We just need to understand it. So be a detective, right? We're going to find things out. Be curious, not judgmental. And then we can consider maybe not bringing it with us everywhere. Okay. Cause like, I don't bring my baby blanket with me anywhere. If Sean and I are gone for like a month, I leave it at the house, you know, I don't need it anymore, but they're probably, I don't know. I'd have to think back. There could have been a time where I felt like I did, you know, definitely as a little kid, I did. Um, I think there's a little part of adult me that was like, I think I should take this with me, you know, um, again, no judgments, right? We're all just doing the best we can with what we got. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hi, Katie, how are you? I have a question regarding addictions and addictive behaviors. Okay. I have noticed that I have a problem with addictions and addictive behaviors. However, the problem I have is that I am genuinely prone to addictive behavior. Some people are. 
I try to fight my addictions as soon as I notice them. For example, an increased alcohol consumption. But as soon as one addictive behavior is under control, a new addictive behavior evolves. Like for example, sports, healthy eating, puzzles, media, binge eating, etc. It almost doesn't matter what the addiction or addictive behavior is. We'll get into this. I generally can't find a healthy balance in my actions. Do you have any tips on what to do to find a healthy balance in life again? If it's relevant, I'm currently diagnosed with depression, panic attacks, and PTSD, and I have several alcoholics in my family. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us week after week. Of course. Now, obviously, when it comes to alcoholism, there is a genetic component. Those of us with alcoholics in our family, which I'd argue is like 95% of people has an alcoholic somewhere in their family, you're to increase risk, right? It's like 25% more likely that you could have that problem too. Now, what sounds to me... Now, yes, I, being aware of our alcohol consumption is key, but I have a feeling that what's going on here is that we, I don't know if you're in therapy, I would encourage you to, to get in if you can, if you can find it and afford it and all those good things. There's better help. I have links in all my descriptions to get it a little bit cheaper. There's also things like Talkspace. If you don't like the better help interface, there's other um, online resources. Now it's one of the silver linings of COVID is that we have more access. So look into that because what I think is happening here is we have a root problem. Now that root problem could be, I'd assume, cause you have depression and I think it says, it says PT, PTBS, but I don't, I'd assumed it was PTSD. You were trying to say, if I'm incorrect, you let me know. Um, but there could be some trauma in our past or at least some intense dysregulation and upset. If we don't want to call it trauma, that's okay. I know that could be a strong word for some people, but something has happened. There's a root problem. And that's why we have all these different sprouted portions of our tree, right? We have all these branches going every which way into a healthy eating, binge eating, uh, obsession with sports, alcoholism, right? Maybe over shopping. I've had patients do that. Um, you know, gambling addiction. It's like pick your addiction, right? And that's because we have this root problem and all of these addictions that we're, we have is us scrambling to try to find a way to cope with what we feel and what we've been through. That's why therapy can be so incredibly healing. We need to unpack that root problem while building up our resources or our coping skills so that instead of reaching for that bottle or reaching for a social media, like our phone to get on social media, instead of doing that, we can reach for something else that helps us feel better. Maybe when I get that urge, I go for a quick walk, I call a friend, you know, I do something else. Will it always win out? No. Does that mean you're a failure? No. I just want you to keep trying because as we unpack that root issue, the urge to use those unhealthy coping skills might get greater at first, but stick with it because it does get better. But because we've had all these various things, it's like we become obsessed and focused and addicted to anything. It's because it's too uncomfortable for us to be quiet and to feel what we feel and to acknowledge the bad things that happened or the upsetting things that we went through. It's hard. That's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to feel that. So instead we focus on all this other stuff. And so that tells me that we need to find the right help for you so that you can have other coping skills and other ways to manage what comes up for you versus all this numbing out. Because that's really what those all are, num numbing out. I want you instead to feel okay tapping in. Now, since you said you're currently diagnosed, I'm assuming that you're in treatment, in therapy. Let them know about this. You can tell them just like you told me. 
be like, I feel like I'm switching from one to the other. Like I'll, I'll start drinking a little bit more and I'm like, I don't want to do that. And then I start doing more puzzles and media and binge eating and, you know, and I feel like I'm swinging from one to the next. Um, yeah. And I have videos about coping skills too. Just look up 25 coping skills. Katie Morton, the video will pop up if you're looking for more resources and the comments are filled with them too. Okay. It does get better. Okay. Hang in there. Moving on to question number seven. This question says, hey, Katie, how do you know how you feel for real? I constantly doubt my feelings and I find it so hard to trust that my feelings are not made up, particularly sad feelings. I never really doubt happy feelings. Interesting, right? There are times when I'm unable to get out of bed and I feel extremely sad and I even have thoughts of suicide or harming myself. But then at the when the height of those depressed feelings or thoughts lessen, I cannot help thinking that I was never truly sad. Interesting. Or sometimes I think it was just a one-time thing and that it wasn't a big deal. Even though I know those moments have been happening quite regularly lately. It makes it so hard for me to seek help when I don't even know if I actually need it. I hope this makes sense. Thanks for all that you do. Yes, I have a lot of thoughts about this. Okay. I have to re-up on the chapstick. Okay. So first things first. Whenever I have a patient or someone in our community tell me that they feel like things are made up, like you're doubting your feelings and there's certain distinctions about what feelings are okay and what are not. So you never doubt your happy feelings, but you doubt your sad ones. My first question is, had anybody ever in your life told you or shown you that it wasn't okay to have sad feelings? I'm always just curious about that. A lot of this can be tied to maybe directly a parent being like, Uh, boys don't cry or wipe your tears, suck it up, buttercup. Like I remember I had this coach for softball once when I like, I like got whacked you guys with a softball and it was like cold out. And that thing, like I had a bruise that looked like the, the stitches on the ball on my leg. And I remember rubbing it and he was like, don't be a sissy, don't rub it. And I was like, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want to do. Right. But we can get those messages. Let's say that was my dad. And he just like kept harping on that. Luckily my dad was a very, he's a big softy. God, I love that. But let's say that was my dad and I kept getting that message. Then I could go into adulthood thinking that it's not okay to feel sad or to admit defeat or admit pain or upset. There's so many ways I could interpret that and take that into the world. And so I want you to kind of do a little, hmm, just considering where we maybe have heard that before, where we've maybe gotten that message. Did we watch someone else do it where like they weren't, didn't feel okay being sad? or were we told directly or whatever. So consider that. Doesn't mean that that's going to be the, the we're going to find that that's the truth or that that really happened, but it's worth exploring, right? So there's that. Then um, I'm curious about what you tell yourself about being sad. Is it part of the, like, I don't know if there's trauma in our background and it's part of our like minimization of what happened or invalidation of our experience, or if we're so, so, okay, that's the second part. Pay attention to how you talk to yourself about it. Now, my third potential thought is that I'm wondering if we get so extremely sad that we dissociate. Now, I know that sounds really weird, but I've had patients tell me this all the time, that when we have thoughts of suicide or harming ourselves, sometimes that's so overwhelming and we're so triggered that we like pull the ripcord on reality and struggle to remember that we really felt sad. And we'd be like, I think I was just making that up. It's like we have splotchy memory. That could be possible too. And so my real encouragement for you is to talk with a therapist because I have a feeling that we just need some basic validation. We need some, we need to hear someone say, I hear you. I see you. You're important. Your feelings are valid. 
You don't have to have a bunch of evidence to support that you felt sad. It's okay to feel sad. You know, sometimes we just need that. And that's okay. That's a basic human need to feel seen and heard and validated. Basic human need. Um, and so talk to them about this. Let them know that this is happening. But those are some of my suspicions. Um, I just kind of want to know like where it's coming from for you. Because you said you can't help but thinking that you were never truly sad. Like because it's not currently happening, it doesn't exist. Is that is that true? You know, where did we hear that? It, I don't know. Dig into your past a little. Notice, you know, if there's certain things that trigger, is it, can you feel like not extremely sad and that's okay? Or is this, you know, just let's dig into it. Let's be a little bit curious. And really, it's not that you're going to know how you feel for real. That was the question. How do you know how you feel for real? It's more, I want to understand the conversation that you're having with yourself about an emotional experience because it's in there that we're like undoing it or trying to negate it or minimize what happened. You know how you felt. You felt extremely sad. You had thoughts of suicide and harming yourself. You know, but then you second guess it. And there's some kind of, there's some conversation going on. I want to know what that conversation is. And if we can identify that and maybe, like I said, maybe it's an old conversation we heard from our mom or we saw or whatever, then I want you to use some bridge statements. Remember, they're not fully positive, but they're not negative. And those bridge statements can be things like, you know, I'm open to the fact that Katie told me that when I felt sad, I actually felt sad. I don't know if I believe her. Sometimes I think she's full of, of hooey, but I'm open to it. I'm going to think about it. That's a bridge statement and I love it. So we'll work through that. Hopefully one of those kinds of things helps guide you on your way. Okay. It does get better and you have every right to feel sad. And yeah, I think there's something in there, that conversation we're having after the fact, but you let me know. Moving on to our final question. Question number eight says, hey, Katie, I'm curious if people could be traumatized by movies. Yes, we'll talk about this. I was really scared once when I watched a movie when I was like 13 or 14, and that wasn't even a scary movie. However, I started to have these imaginations that if I open a door, I'm going to see a corpse. At that time, I was afraid to open a door or watch the door of the elevator opening or something like that. I just kept thinking that this is all in my imagination and it doesn't really exist. It's been four years and the intensity of this imagination kind of becomes low most of the time, but it still pops up every once in a while. I've talked about this with my therapist, but I don't think she can do anything else besides validate my feelings of being scared. The horrifying imagination is still there. I think I was having a hard time at 13 because I had some horrible school teachers who yelled at me, who yelled at people almost every day. I feel kind of terrified, even though I wasn't the one who was yelled at. Let's dig into this. Do you think there's any connection in this? Thanks for all of your work. Love from Japan. Oh, Japan is on the top of my wish list to visit. Oh, cannot wait to go. Okay. So yes, we, we can be traumatized by movies, especially when we're younger, because it's really hard for us. I forget the ages in brain development, but it can be really hard for us when we're younger to know the difference between real life and movies and TV. Uh, a lot of kids will think that what's happening in a film or in a TV show is happening in real life. We're just watching it, right? It's really hard for us to discern that. So yes, you can be traumatized by film. Now, I have a feeling that what was happening here, so that yes, that can happen and that could be what's happening. But because we have this trauma going on where you had horrible school teachers who were yelling at people almost every single day, you feared for your safety and the safety of your friends, right? You're at school, you're a kid. I mean, geez, right? And 13, 14, that's such a tough time anyway. It's like puberty. It's uncomfortable. We hate our bodies. We have crushes on people. Such a mess, right? Such a vulnerable time. You were being traumatized actively, which I think 
we glommed on to this kind of imagination thing because it's almost like we were traumatized twice in a way, but this was a safer thing to think about, even though it doesn't feel safe. It's still scary. But the teachers yelling and, and actually maybe getting in trouble seemed more threatening. So it was easier for us to focus on that thing. And so it's almost like our PTSD took over the form of the movie. Does that even make sense? Our brains are interesting and incredibly adaptive. And they try to alleviate pain as much as they can. And so PTSD can come out in these funny ways where I can't tell you how many of my patients will come in thinking that their their main issue is this one thing. It seems scary and they're overwhelmed, but they're like, I don't really know what to do with this. It's, it's just that I have an intense fear of elevators. And come to find out it's like part of a bigger story. And I feel like that's kind of what's happening here is this, this fear of like seeing a corpse, like watching a door open is part of a bigger story for you. And so I would encourage you to talk to your therapist about the school teachers yelling and, and what that brought up for you and see if as you process through that trauma, because that's what that was, if we see that alleviate a little bit of this fear and a little bit of that kind of what you feel is your like imagination, your horrifying imagination. Let's see, because sometimes when our imagination is running away from us and into like a scarier place, it can be a a way that our brain is trying to cope with something that was terrifying. It's trying to reprocess it. It could even be trying to focus on that instead of the real trauma, right? So I kind of want to see if that alleviates a little bit because I do believe that they're connected because they're happening around the same time and your brain just kind of glommed onto this other one because we knew it was a film, right? Because you're old enough to be like, oh, I know that was a film, but we focused on it so we didn't have to focus on the other stuff. So I'm thinking if we focus on the other stuff that's a little harder and talk about it in a way that feels okay, little by little in your own process, that then we'll see, you know, a little alleviation of those symptoms. But keep me posted. Feel free to write back in. But I think that that will help. And that will also give your therapist something to work on. That's something that they think they can really help you with. Okay. Okay. Keep me posted. Thank you all so much for sending in your questions. Thank you for listening and watching. Share this podcast with someone you think it could help. That's truly what helps me uh, grow and, sh and continue to do this podcast. I love you all. Uh, don't forget to check out my Patreon page if you're looking for more ways to interact with our community. Have a wonderful rest of your week, and I'll see you next time. Bye. Katie, anything. I'm all finished, honey.